What's cozier than a good story? A good holiday story. One that's going to take us all the way up north. I'm Lisa DeSaro, and this is Remember Reading. Do you remember reading The Polar Express by Chris Van Allsburg? I remember when that book came out, it passed around the office because it was such an amazing, beautiful book. That's Leo Landry, a bookseller at An Unlikely Story, a bookshop in Plainville, Massachusetts. The store is owned by Jeff Kinney, author of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. As it nears its 40th anniversary, the Polar Express is nothing short of a Christmas classic. But before winning the Caldecott Medal in 1986, before the movie and the Polar Express train rides, Chris Van Allsburg had already garnered quite the reputation. He's the author and illustrator behind The Garden of Abdul Ghazazi, Jumanji, Zathora, and many others. So when the Polar Express came out in 1985, his fans were already waiting. Leo was working an internship at Atlantic Monthly at the time. There was that annual anticipation of his new book and what would it be? His art just had a, a really different quality than, than a lot of illustration that was out there at that time. And that combined with the Christmas story, his unusual perspectives, his lighting in his artwork, the shadow and the light, every spread was just so beautifully composed. But Chris wasn't sure the book would be so quickly welcomed by readers. In part, he says, because of the way he made it. The book is done in pastel. It's done in oil pastels, which are a difficult medium to control. It's basically like trying to draw with a tube of lipstick. You know, it's just the soft, squishy, kind of waxy stuff. And I also did it on, on top of a, a deeply toned pastel paper. So the drawings ended up being quite dark. There was some intention in there because I knew I was not creating a cheerful story. You know, so there are decisions that you make as an illustrator that are stylistic considerations that, that have to do with what you think the, the emotional tone of the book is. So there was some intention in using this deeper palette. But as I say, I, I'm self-taught. I didn't have tremendous control over what was happening, but, you know, work through it. You wouldn't know from Chris's work that he wasn't trained as a 2D artist, but as a sculptor. The rich, deep blues and reds give his illustrations a wintry, moonlit quality. And at every turn, Christmas cheer is balanced by shadow. Like a lot of his books, they, they have a little bit of tension in all of the artwork that is a little bit like you just don't know what's going to happen when you turn the page, even though it's a seemingly like a nice Christmas story. You know, that first illustration on the title page there's like a wolf running through the woods with the train behind it. So there's just a little edge to it to me of like, oh, there's wolves out there. Like, you know what I mean? The introduction to the anniversary edition describes the same tension, quote, through dark forests, over tall mountains, and across a barren desert of ice, the Polar Express makes its way to the huge city standing alone at the top of the world, unquote. It's a place, in other words, distinguished from the everyday, 
the routines of those less magical stretches of life. Between the train's departure and its arrival at its destination, we find wilderness, barren land, and possible danger following in the shadows, hence the wolf on the book's title page. But there's magic, too. On the next page, we meet a young boy in bed on Christmas Eve. The story is told as a memory. I did not rustle the sheets. I breathed slowly and silently. I was listening for a sound. A sound a friend had told me I'd never hear. The ringing bells of Santa's sleigh. There is no Santa, my friend had insisted. But I knew he was wrong. Late that night, I did hear sounds, though not of ringing bells. From outside came the sounds of hissing steam and squeaking metal. I looked through my window and saw a train standing perfectly still in front of my house. The boy climbs over his still-made bed to his window, where, outside, it's snowing. Something out there, maybe a train, lights his face. Though the book had been cherished since its introduction, Chris had some early misgivings about it. It's not that he didn't like it exactly, but the original pastel illustrations were difficult to reproduce. That presented a bit of a problem. It was just at the beginning of the era of scanning separation, which meant that they were using a new technology to scan the art. And the scans were making things that were not really very good representations of the original art. But the book was on press, and the initial sheets, Chris says, were a little muddy. The technology just wasn't quite there to make some of the more detailed and vivid reproductions we see in 2023. But it was time for books to be bound and shipped. I can remember I said, well, these dark, moody drawings, which are now not only going to be dark and moody, but kind of, I don't know, brownish, yellowish in color in a Christmas book. I said, this is doomed. This is, this is doomed. And I can remember thinking I was in touch with production and they said, well, you know, the books are all about, they're in semi-trucks, they're going to these different distribution points. I kept thinking, geez, maybe these trucks will run off the road and burn. But they didn't. They made it to their destination. The book got into bookstores, the book got into to reviewers' hands, and, and it was extraordinarily well received. And, and nobody bothered to mention how kind of dark and moody and not how well the pictures are not really well balanced tonally completely overlooked and I thought well I guess the story really holds, holds people's attention because the art could have been a lot better but that scanning technology has improved in the years since the book's publication in more recent editions the images are crisper some of Chris's fans like Leo have taken notice I have a couple copies in my collection and in the, the copy that is from recent years, the print quality 
is quite higher than in one of the earlier copies that I have. And you really can see the amazing details in the artwork. Chris agrees. I would invite people if they've got a, a first printing of, of Polar Express and a printing from last year to put them together and they'll see the rewards of improving printing technology. So anyway, books looking pretty good now. Clearer than ever before, we see the Polar Express framed by the hint of a snowy sleeping suburbia at the cover's edges. There's only one image in there that really depicts the street I grew up on. That's on the cover. You can see it's a neighborhood, kind of a classic Midwestern suburb with, you know, line of trees, line of houses, trees at the park strip. And that's where I grew up. So, so that's why it looks like Grand Rapids, my hometown. Since I'm the narrator, I guess that's me. <laughs> you know, so it's basically, you know, there, there are little pieces of autobiography in it, obviously. The boy in the book is Chris, though much younger. In the story, the boy goes outside to find the Polar Express waiting for him, already filled with other children, sipping hot cocoa and singing Christmas carols. And when the train leaves, it's the illustrator's own hometown of Grand Rapids our young hero leaves behind him. All aboard, the conductor cried out. I ran up to him. Well, he said, are you coming? Where, I asked. Why, to the North Pole, of course, was his answer. This is the Polar Express. took his outstretched hand, and he pulled me aboard. The film actually has some references to Grand Rapids in there, which was, I don't know, kind of heartwarming for me. Because <laughs> when the train leaves town, they, they go past um, a department store with a mechanical Santa. As I recall, it's a malfunctioning mechanical Santa, but... The, the kids identified as Herpelsheimers, which was, in fact, the department store I went to when I was a kid to sit on Santa's lap. Reliving those holiday traditions of our earlier years, like Chris's department store Santa, reminds us of something we might have felt once, and maybe even hope to feel again. I asked Leo what the book means to him. Over all the years, the message that resonates, I think, with people is just, as a child, just the importance of believing. Perhaps that's what keeps it going through all the years. I think perhaps for me, that's what it is. The theme of belief is one many readers identify in the Polar Express. From the first page, our young hero is thinking of the boy at school who doesn't believe in Santa. But the theme is most apparent in the story's focus on the sound our protagonist doesn't hear on that first page, the ringing bells of Santa's sleigh. You know, people have always, you know, interpreted the story as, as one about belief, and it certainly has that. But the book is about more than the importance of belief, 
Chris reminds me. But I would say that as much as being a story about belief, it's it's a coming-of-age story because there's a point in our lives where we must become rational human beings because it's very difficult to function as adults if you live in a world of make-believe. And so when you're 8, 9, 10, uh, actually it's probably younger now, but back when I was 7, 8, 9, 10, you know, that's, that's a, a kind of a watershed moment. When we first contend with the impossibility of true magic, or at least begin to doubt it, we're really confronted with the starker realities of our world, even if a bit indirectly. As the Polar Express makes its way from the boy's childhood home to the North Pole, it travels through the dark. Soon, there were no more lights to be seen. We traveled through cold, dark forests, where lean wolves roamed, and white-tailed rabbits hid from our train as it thundered through the quiet wilderness. The harsher qualities of the world are made apparent. The land through which we travel can feel barren. And there are wolves out there, as Leo noted. It seems, to some degree, belief can insulate us from the cold, at least until we're a bit older. What are you going to accept? The need for rationality in interacting with life, <laughs> you know? And what are you giving up by accepting that, that requirement? And, and can you accept that requirement and also bring along some of what you don't want to leave behind? So we reach a bit of a contradiction. Does growing up necessarily mean letting go of magic completely and for good? Is it possible to maintain that cognitive dissonance that, that, that there's something, something wonderful and magical that can happen in life, but it really defies logic? It may be a single moment, Chris says, in which we suddenly leap forward, in which we leave some of the safety of belief behind us, but maybe not all of it. In his first book, The Garden of Abdul Ghazazi, a woman named Miss Hester asks a neighborhood boy, Alan, to watch her dog, Fritz. Things are going pretty well, until on their walk, Fritz slips free of his leash and into the mysterious magician Ghazazi's garden. A sign warns Alan that no dogs are allowed to enter. Alan searches for Fritz, but he doesn't find him. When confronted by Gazazi, he reveals the dog. He has turned Miss Hester's dog, it seems, into a duck. <laughs> Fritz flies away, taking Alan's hat with him. And at the very end of the story, the boy, he's at the same cusp, really, that the protagonist in the Polar Express is because... He believes that what he's seen is absolutely magical. It's Merlin-like. It's, it's the wizard. He made something impossible happen. And then he's disabused of this belief by an adult who says, oh, it, you know, it, it, this is what magicians do. They make you think something crazy has happened, but it hasn't. And of course, it's great for the little period of time you think something miracle has happened, but really, they don't happen. At the very end of the book, Fritz returns home. He's a dog again. Or maybe he was a dog all along. It must have been a trick. So the boy goes home and he's now he's now he's older. He's an adult now because he knows that real magic can't happen. But then at the very last page of the book, an object turns up 
which creates doubt about whether or not Alan was wrong, that maybe Gazzese really is a true magician. The object is Alan's hat, the one the duck flew away with back in the magician's garden. Or was it Fritz after all? Chris mentioned before that when Alan returns home from Gazzese's garden, when the possibility of magic is removed, he's older. But Alan doesn't really leave magic behind. He just gains the doubt that comes with engaging in rational thought. Of course, it's left to us to decide what to do with that doubt. That was the first story I ever wrote without conceiving of an agenda at the, at the outset. But I just got to this, I got to the story and I got to the end and I, and I thought, well, I'm not sure that this will meet with the approval of an editor because most children's books spell out the lesson on the last page. There's no doubt about what this is about. And I mean, this book is about how nice it is to share. <laughs> Everybody knows this book is about what's the nature of reality? Is there such a thing as magic? And not only that, but uh, within the framework of this book, what did you read about? Did you read about magic or did you read about a miracle? So I thought, nah, this is not going to be welcome. <laughs> it's ambivalent. It's ambiguous. You know, six, seven, eight-year-old kids are, are not going to be happy with that. But they were. The Garden of Abdul Ghazazi was, like many of the books that followed it, well-received however ambiguous a line they might walk. In the Polar Express, the doubts about magic begin and end with the sleigh bells, the sound the young boy of the story doesn't hear from the very beginning of the book, until he does. Across a long red brick bridge, the Polar Express makes its way toward the factories in the distance. Factories where, we assume, Elves are busy making toys. These are the scenes Leo particularly loves. Many of the scenes, like when they get to the North Pole, those scenes from above are really beautiful. It kind of almost, for me, those buildings, they sort of look like, like they're in Providence, they look like some of those, those risty buildings almost. The book's vision of the North Pole does bear a little resemblance to the Rhode Island School of Design, where Chris continued his art school education. It's among those collegiate buildings where, in a snowy sea of red-headed elves, our protagonist finally hears the sound he's been listening for. We pressed through the crowd to the edge of a large open circle. In front of us stood Santa's sleigh. The reindeer were excited. They pranced and paced, ringing the silver sleigh bells that hung from their harnesses. It was a magical sound, like nothing I'd ever heard. The magical sound of Santa's sleigh is finally real, or at least perceived. And when Santa pulls the boy onto his knee and asks him what he wants for Christmas, well, what do you think he asked for? What I wanted more than anything was one silver bell from Santa's sleigh. When I asked, Santa smiled. And of course, Santa gives it to him. At midnight, Santa climbs into his sleigh, and he's off and into the night. But 
the scenes from above when Santa is taking off in his sleigh, where there's, it's almost like a town square below with all of the elves all gathered down below in, in tiny little individual pictures or little images. The lights from the building have this amazing glow that he uses to make shadows on the reindeer and the sleigh. Santa's sleigh disappears, and the boy and the other children return to the train. The tone is celebratory. But when he reaches into his pocket to show the silver bell to the other kids, all the boy finds is a hole in his pocket. In the illustration, he sits on the red train seat, his head hanging low in disappointment. He's heartbroken. And we're left to wonder whether the bell was real at all. The scene illustrates the central tension between childlike wonder and adult-like doubt, which makes me curious if we can only carry so much of that wonder and belief in the irrational over into adulthood, what is it that keeps so many of us coming back in search of it every year? Chris says in the back cover of the anniversary edition of the book that he simply wanted back in. He wanted to rekindle the feeling that the protagonist feels when he hears those sleigh bells. So I wanted to know, did he? I believe I did. I mean, some, some way of getting back in is if as an adult, how keenly can you savor uh, or, or, or reawaken the feelings you had when you were eight? Can you actually say, I, I, I can actually remember what it felt like to believe that that existed. And, and if you can, if you can sort of create these, you know, neuron connections that, that, that existed then, you, you might be able to reawaken through some kind of effort. That's a way back in. If you can remember clearly enough what it felt like. Some people, like Chris, find a way back in through their children. You aren't a child anymore. Now you have children. The reintroduction of a child who believes in the possibility of Santa Claus and the presence of a believer in the house, even if they're six or seven, creates a different feeling inside the house, even if you know her. So just doing this for the kids. But when you've got them in the house, when you've got somebody running around the house who is really wired up because he's coming, it just makes it feel like a different place. And, you know, it's another way of getting back in. Maybe that's why so many copies are sold year over year. The book is in its second generation, Leo says. Many of the book's earliest readers have their own young ones to share the magic with. It's one book he knows he's going to sell every year. I work in a small children's only bookstore for 20 years. Now I work in this a much larger general bookstore. But in just those two bookstores, for all these years, we might sell somewhere from like 25 to 40 copies consistently every single year in just these little stores. And, you know, imagine that times every store in the country doing that similar type of thing based on their own volume. Sometimes I just wonder how can someone not already have this book? But then every year we sell another 25 plus 30, 40 copies. So that's really impressive to me because there are very few books where that happens. And this is definitely one of them. After the book's ever-upward success, it would become a film. Chris already had two books turned to movies under his belt at the time, Jumanji and Zathora. 
And actually, before those films were made, I was prepared for the disappointments that might await an author because they can happen. But those disappointments didn't come. In fact, it was mostly good news from the get-go. A film was going to be made because of Tom's interest in it. And then more talent was attracted to it. So Tom Hanks would be our conductor. And production set into motion. But not before Chris expressed some concerns. The one thing where I, I, I sort of parted company with the filmmakers was that they expressed a determination to make something that was as faithful to the book as possible. And I said to him, greatly honored that you think my book uh, can could support a feature-length film uh, do, with that. I said, but there's not enough story material there to do that. Uh, I, I think by the time you took the the drama inherent in, the, in this journey and, and just stretched it out for an hour, I don't know what it is, maybe an hour, five, hour, ten. I said, it's, it needs more, it needs more. It just needs more drama. It needs more just incident and not just, you know, terrible things that happen on the train ride. It needs, it needs more problems. It needs more character. Chris was sure the story wasn't enough to carry a whole movie. While he imagined a story with Santa in a more prominent role, the filmmakers opted for the more faithful interpretation. But there was another challenge, one that made the Polar Express different from his experience with Jumanji or Zathora. They would use motion capture technology to make an animated film. It would make the animations more lifelike. I don't know, I saw maybe a minute of this test, and this was the first ambitious use of motion capture. And to see Tom Hanks come out of the train and, and, and to see that this was not reality, but really close to it, I said, this is great. Because I, I thought it bridged this, this gap, which in some ways was appropriate for the kinds of drawings I was doing, that it was realistic, but it was also not really the real world. So I was, I was all on board with it. Things were pretty good. But motion capture was still very new, which meant potential drawbacks. There was a point where I could see that there was going to be a problem with the uncanny valley. And it was not a widely understood concept. The uncanny valley refers to the point at which a representation of a human gets a bit too close to the real thing. A robot that looks like a robot is enchanting, maybe, but a robot that looks too much like a real, living, breathing person, not so much. It becomes eerie and uncanny. We know it's not real, but it looks nearly real. And that's when people find it off-putting and a little creepy. And so I could see as, as I was looking at, you know, some of the dailies, I said, I'm not sure about this. You know, because there were problems with the eyes and the characters and the faces. But the film came out. Kids and their families came out to see it. It was a hit. Chris couldn't deny the crowd approved. And in most ways, he did too. One of the things that it didn't do that I thought would have killed the film was to make it a happy film. Because the book's melancholy, kind of dark. And, and, and there are actually notes of that in the film, which I approved of and liked. In the book, when the boy gets home, he's sad to leave his new friends behind. The house's dark interior is lit only by the lights outside, 
the lights from the Polar Express. The conductor calls out one final, Merry Christmas! And with a whistle, the train is gone. The book's tonal darkness is emphasized by its setting. The story takes place almost entirely during the nighttime. But there's one scene that takes place in the daylight, at the end of the story, on Christmas Day. On Christmas morning, my little sister Sarah and I opened our presents. When it looked as if everything had been unwrapped, Sarah found one last small box behind the tree. It had my name on it. Inside was the silver bell. There was a note. Found this on the seat of my sleigh. Fix that hole in your pocket. Signed, Mr. C. The sound of the bell is as beautiful as ever. The boy's parents can't hear it, though. It must be broken, they say. But the boy's doubt is gone. The bell continues to ring, for him at least. And Christmas, as it must, ends. But there's more to this story, an origin story behind the Christmas classic. It begins with what the train is really all about. In the book, and even in the film, there's this clear impression given that the train is contrived for the benefit of agnostic children who are on the cusp of disbelief, and they need to have their, they need to have their belief shorn up. And they get that by taking a trip to the North Pole, which would for sure do the trick. You'd believe forever having had that experience. Naturally, that's what happens for our protagonist. At one time, most of my friends could hear the bell. But as years passed, it fell silent for all of them. Even Sarah found one Christmas that she could no longer hear its sweet sound. Though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me, as it does for all who truly believe. But Chris always had another central character in mind for the backstory when he wrote The Polar Express. But in my imagination, even when I wrote the book, the original book, I didn't see it as, as an opportunity for the children, but there was actually a, a, a backstory that was feeding me. And the reason for the trip is for the benefit of Santa Claus, who for thousands of Christmas celebrations has never had a child sit on his lap. He knows this happens all around the world when his imitators uh, occupy the thrones in, in, in department stores. He's driven by the compulsion to create this sense of wonder and excitement for children when they open up these gifts Christmas morning. But for all these years, he's treated like a, a criminal who has to sneak into people's houses and slide down these soot-covered chimneys. And the result is, is that after doing this for years, he's really depressed. And you may know this about Santa Claus, or you may not. The way he gets back up through the chimney is to place a single finger on one nostril and exhale sharply. And this is what propels him back up the chimney and back into the sleigh. The problem that exists in the North Pole is that he's lost that power. And he can still get up in the air, but 
they're worried that he's not going to be able to get up the air far enough to get himself back out the chimney. And they decide that the problem is, is that he's no longer inspired by this idea of, of children receiving gifts and children believing in his miracle. And so they come to this conclusion that the thing that would help him, the thing that would really get him his mojo back is if they could bring a group of children to the North Pole, these children could sit on his lap and he could do the ritual with those children and that that would reinvigorate him, that that would reestablish his his power, his potency to, to propel himself back up the chimney. Having children around a Christmas celebration is, for many people, what makes it so joyful, Chris suggests. And in theory, at least, why wouldn't Santa also crave that youthful spirit? Isn't Christmas for adults, too? At an unlikely story, everyone gets to celebrate. This year, they're they're setting up Christmas trees all around the space, and often we will have carolers come and perform on the stage while people are shopping, or there's a group of ukulele performers that have gotten some local notoriety called the Unlikely Strummers, and sometimes they come through and will perform. It's a it's a very it's a very beautiful space, especially during the holidays. We're doing it up really big this year. As for Chris's Christmas celebration, it gets a little mixed in with Hanukkah, he says. But at his house on Christmas, everyone, including his grandson, arrives in their Polar Express pajamas. And a miniature Polar Express train circles the base of the Christmas tree. But Chris could never have imagined such traditions would be in his future. If you told me the year it was printed and, and on its way to these distribution centers and these semi-trucks, there's like, somebody told me, well, you know, one day you know, there's going to be millions of copies sold and they're going to make a movie and they're going to be having rides on trains. What do you think of that? I would, I would have said, that's not possible. Possibility isn't always easy to see. Maybe it gets harder as we grow up. But if we actively look for it or listen for it, we might just catch a glimpse of something impossible. Sure, maybe the bell does fall silent for most everyone, but what if it's all right to believe once or twice a year, even if it's all pretend? And if we want to tell the neighbors we're doing it for the kids, that's fine. But don't forget, it's for you too. Happy holidays. Want more of your favorite authors? Check out our other episodes and remember reading with us because some stories never get old. Tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins, Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Elba Luz, and Bethany Vinatero. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Lisa DeSaro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>